This is from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thank you, Lucia, for reading that for us this morning. I have a confession to start the morning with, and that confession is that I hate watching the news. I think... Maybe there's others, a couple, couple heads nodding, okay, which is funny for me in my house or in my family because both my dad and my father-in-law love watching the news, which means I'm often out of conversations. Um, but it's not just TV, right? It's social media. It's anywhere on the internet. You see these news stories pop up, and I hate it, not because I hate the people involved, not because I want to just bury my head in the sand and ignore any of the problems in the world. But I hate watching the news because every time I watch it, I just feel so small. I just feel so helpless in the face of all the world's problems. You watch the news, you see these tremendous needs around the world. You see the, the hurt and you see the brokenness. It just feels too much. I just feel too small. I almost get paralyzed with all the news of wars, injustice and poverty, of rape and murder feel really small and helpless. Anybody else feel that way? Feel that way? Unfortunately, avoiding the news doesn't actually help either because I have windows in my house, right? And I leave my house on a regular basis. And as I go through my community and my neighborhood, I'm in the car driving, I just know that there are problems going around, right? Ignorance isn't bliss. It doesn't actually get rid of the problem. I know that as I walk through my neighborhood, I know that there are broken marriages, There are kids who hate their parents. There are people suffering with depression and anxiety that's crippling. There's anger, there's sickness, there's cancer. There's all these things that go on and on. And it's tempting to start thinking about the problems that are outside of my family. But if I'm honest, I look at the things that are going on inside of my family, and I'm too small to deal with those as well. I can't even deal with the issues that I know are inside of me. And if you find your place, yourself in that place this morning, kind of overwhelmed by the needs around you and feeling really small and really weak, 
that my hope is this morning that at the end of our time together that you'll have a little hope, that you'll have confidence in the good news of who Christ is and what that means for you and I is we want to be those who learn to love our neighbor, to be those who show mercy. Because you see, if you have inside of you some desire that when you see the needs of others, you have a desire inside of you to move towards them, to help them, that's mercy. Theologian Herman Bavink described mercy, particularly the mercy of God, as the aspect of his nature, the part of who God is, which moves him to relieve suffering and misery. And as the people of God, we become more and more, we're made more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. And as you're being made into the image of Christ, you become people of mercy as well. We are becoming that. That is what Christ is making us, and we work towards that. We lean into that. We are those who see the needs of those around us, and we want to move towards those as well. And you see that on display in this, in this passage that we've been camped out in for this fall and last month and so far into this month. And we're returning to that passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, which Lucia just read for us. We're returning to it because this passage is kind of like that bottle of ketchup in your fridge. You know the one that you think is empty because the last squeeze just like splattered it all over the table and your clothes, where it seems like it's empty? But if you want to get more out of it, what do you have to do? You flip it upside down and you leave it there. You can shake it, but if you leave it there, after a while, you'll find there's more ketchup in the bottle. And it seems like it's the never-ending ketchup bottle. It always seems to have a little more in it than you thought. And the beautiful thing is, is that is the idea behind what the Bible calls us to do, which is to meditate, to meditate on God's word, to sit with a passage. It's a difference between kind of the Eastern meditation of emptying your mind. Biblical meditation isn't an emptying of your mind. It's a focusing. It's a fixing of your mind on something, which is why we've been sitting on this passage, knowing that we will never exhaust this one passage. Don't worry, we will not stay on this passage forever. But that's why we're sitting on this passage for a while. Because it's not just, you'll never exhaust the passage, you'll never exhaust all of Scripture, and the point's not just to understand all that the text has to say, it's bigger than that. Because every time you engage with the Bible, you have an opportunity to engage with the God of the Bible. Scripture is a means by which we connect with God himself, and the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and transforms the people of God to look more like the Son of God, to look more like Jesus. So as we meditate in this passage, we're praying that, that as we think about what it means to be neighbored by Christ, the better Samaritan, that that will transform us and shape us into those who go and do likewise, who go and love our neighbor as ourselves. And as you look through this story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus asked the expert in the law. We come to the end of it. You heard it. You were probably very familiar with it. You might have been able to finish as Lucia was reading most of the sentences. But after telling this story... Jesus looks to the man, the expert in the law, who was testing him, and he says, which of these three, the Levite, the priest, the Samaritan, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the correct answer is, as the expert in the law gives, the one who had mercy on him. In the story, we see that the Samaritan is the one who neighbored. He's the one who had mercy. He's the one who saw the man in need and was moved to alleviate the sufferings, to meet the man's needs. And the man's needs were pretty obvious, right? If you spend a few minutes, you can make quite a list of what was really wrong with this man, not even knowing what bone specifically was broken. But the text tells us that he was beaten, 
He was stripped naked. He's beaten half dead within an inch of his life, left all alone, still in danger from the elements and animals or other, other travelers who meant wrong, meant to do harm. You could go on and on and list that off. Part of being a neighbor is actually being aware of the needs of those around you. So for just a moment, let's, let's just think for a second. Think of, of your neighbors, right? Earlier we defined our neighbor as anyone who comes near you. But let's think about specifically the people you come near every single day. Let's think about your neighbors who live near you, in your community. Are, are you aware of their needs? What about your coworkers? People you come near every day. Are you close enough to them to know their stories? to know their hurts, to know their needs. Some of those needs are really obvious. They're, they're, they're right in your face. And some of them are not so obvious. And whether it appears obvious or not so obvious, the first step of neighboring is actually a prayer that says, Lord, would you give me eyes to see those around me as my neighbor? And would you give me eyes to see what their needs are? Because very simply put, sin is a, an inward turning, a, t- a turning inward on yourself. It's self-absorption. And so it takes a work of the Spirit to actually get our eyes off of ourselves and not be concerned with only our own interests, but also the interests of others, the needs of others. And as we begin to see that, it's evidence of God's Spirit in us as He transforms the way that we view people and see their needs. In a really, really good book on this entire parable, Ministries of Mercy, author Tim Keller lays out four categories of needs that every single human has, and I think they're really helpful. The first category is theological. As human beings, we're made in the image of God, and we are designed to be in an intimate relationship with the God of the universe who made us. We're designed to be naked and unashamed before him. Intimacy, to know Christ and to know, to know God and who the one who sent Christ is where eternal life is found, John says. But rather than embracing God, we as a human race have rejected him. We've rebelled against him, which is what the Bible calls sin. It's treason. And as a result, our relationship with God has been severed. Most basic, most fundamental need of every human is traced back to this. This is the most fundamental need, and many of us live unaware of that need. He goes on and says that not only is it theological, but there's psychological needs meaning we have a, a, a need to have purpose and meaning, satisfaction, other self-fulfillment needs they might be called in psychology, maybe mental health needs or peace. But as a result of being separated from God, we experience that brokenness all within ourselves, in our hearts and in our minds. We're filled with fear. We carry around the burden of shame for things we have done, things that have been done to us. We're ashamed of who we are. We're anxious, we're self-conscious, and you could keep right on going. And there's social needs, which means that we are created as relational beings designed to experience love and belonging and community and healthy, intimate relationships with one another. But since this room and this entire earth is filled with fearful, insecure people, there's some breakdown there, right? Tend towards, we feel, the, we, we feel the sin in our relationship. We feel the breakdown. We tend toward either isolation or some of us towards dominance. Relationships fall apart. Slander and gossip. And then you throw a little power into society, into that mix, that dysfunctionalness. 
and you end up with systems of injustice. You get racism. You get war and corruption. And we all have physical needs. This is actually even before the fall. Before sin was introduced, we still had physical needs. We had to eat. Health, shelter, all those things. But again, because of sin, we feel the effects of this in the cursed world in which we live, where our bodies are falling apart, where we experience sickness, and our homes need repaired, and our lawns need mowed, and there's all these physical needs. Meals need cooked. And this is the category that's probably the most easily recognized in someone, right? Physical needs. This is also what's probably the most common entrance into a more meaningful relationship is through the avenue of meeting a physical need as an act of love. And what's beautiful is as Christians, as followers of Christ, we don't have to get tied up into this this argument, this conversation about whether it's more important for us to address the theological need or the physical need. We don't have to pick one or the other. The answer is yes. We care for the whole person because that's how Jesus cares for humans. That's how Jesus cares for you. We, we care for their soul. We care to share the gospel that, the, that a way has been made to be right with God and we want to bless people in their physical needs. When Jesus came preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, he came and his mercy, his desire to alleviate sufferings and meet needs didn't just apply to one area, but included all of these areas. See, he came meeting physical needs. He fed people. He healed the sick. The lame walked. The blind saw and the mute spoke. He took those who were outcast. He took those who were marginalized in society, and he invited them into relationship. He saw them with worth and treated them with dignity and value. He came announcing that peace, true peace, is possible now. He came and said, do not be afraid. He liberated people who were bound by shame. And he also came to do what no one else could do, which is to restore the relationship between God and man. And at the cross, forgiveness of sins is now available. A way is possible to be made right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that God who reconciled us to himself through Christ has now given us that same ministry of reconciliation. In other words, those of us who turn to faith and turn to Christ in faith, we've been reconciled, made right with God. And now we turn and we take the love of Christ, the mercy of Christ into the needs of those around us. We are his representatives, his ambassadors, as though Christ was reconciling the world with us, in us, and through us. So we think about what this means for us. We go back to the story of the Good Samaritan. What you see in the story of the Good Samaritan is you see that As he traveled, is a really key phrase right there. We talked a little bit about this last week. As he was going on his way, an opportunity was presented before him to meet the needs of someone else. And you see him taking action. He went to the man. And you could go on and you could work your way kind of through that text. And you could see some of the needs that he met that were really obvious in how the man took what he had in his hands with him. Notice he didn't go, well... I'm not prepared, and so he goes off to find someone else. He takes the opportunity presented to him, and he takes what he had with him at the moment, and he used it to meet a need that was presented to him as he traveled as best as he could. He took his oil. He took his wine. Maybe the oil was for his skin or his hair. His wine was his drink. And he went to the man. He bandaged his wounds. And I just don't think he had a first aid kit with him. 
Where did he get his bandages? Maybe he ripped it off his robe. Who knows? Maybe he took his extra clothes. He, he took his donkey and put the, the injured man on it and provided transportation for him. He took some of his money, not a massive sum, think like two days minimum wage, but he took what he had and he used it to show mercy to meet the needs of others. This is really important for us because showing mercy, neighboring, means that there's a new way that we approach life. And that way of approaching life is in which we are ready and willing to, to take the opportunities that the Lord brings to us as we travel and meet the need as best we can with whatever we have, what the Lord has given us. It's a way that we hold all the stuff, all the money we have, all the materials, our energy, our time, we hold it open-handed before God. We say, God, whatever you bring to me, whatever need is presented, this is yours. I'm ready and willing to be used by you in whatever way possible. So I want to suggest something this week for us to practice, for us to try. A way that maybe we can think about life and the regular things that we do that will change the way we view all of life. And actually, if you have your sermon series guide, this is the question I want you to write down and even be thinking about for the next couple of days and hopefully years. The question would be, what do you love to do? What are things you enjoy? What has God given you? And how can you use that to love your neighbor? It might seem really simple, doesn't it? How can, we be, how can we see the regular things in our life in a transformed way as an opportunity to be used to love our neighbor as we travel? Do you love to bake? Do you love to garden? Do you enjoy sports? Are you the kind of person that could just sit and chat for hours? Do you love working on house projects? Think of things that you're already doing. Think of things that you love. And ask the question, what does it look like to love my neighbor as I do that thing? Now, what's interesting for us is most of us want to, to have an answer to that question. We've been trained by Google and Siri that if you have a question, you can have an answer to it immediately. And what happens is we've, we've elevated the answer over the question. But in this case, I think this question is more important than having an answer right now. You don't have to relieve that tension. Sit with that question. Because what that question does, holding on to that question as you go through all areas of life, keeps you dependent on the Spirit of God saying, Jesus, what does this look like to love my neighbor as I am fill in the blank? The question keeps you dependent on the Lord, keeps you looking for opportunities, asking God to bring moments where you can meet the needs of those around you. You can extend mercy to them. Just thinking about the way that this kind of has looked in, in our family's life in the last uh, couple of months, um, Jolie and I have, we, we love being together as a family. We love doing things with our kids, as, as all parents do. And one of the things that we really have worked hard and will continue to work hard to do is to be involved in our kids' lives, to, to be involved in their school, to, be, uh, uh, to know their friends, to have their friends over to our house, just to be involved. And I love sports. I love all of them. I love watching them. I love playing them. And this past fall, we signed Carter up for uh, his first year of soccer. And a couple weeks after getting that email, or after signing him up, we got an email from the, uh, the league commissioner. 
pleading. You can almost see him typing it on his knees, begging for coaches to be a part of, to help lead. And Jolie and I talked about it. We prayed together, and we saw that as an opportunity to step into, opportunity to love our neighbor. And so I said yes, which is hilarious if you know me. Because if you've seen me play soccer, Cademan's up there laughing at me. Actually, my mother-in-law laughed out loud when I told her I was the coach of the team. Because if you've ever seen me try to play soccer, it's a joke. I'm terrible. But I looked at it and said, well, I love my kids and I love sports. And quite honestly, I can coach under eight soccer, a bunch of six and seven-year-olds. I can do that. So I stepped into that. And I recruited Cademan and a couple others to help me coach. But I took the things that I love doing already and asking that question, Lord, will you present an opportunity to use these things that I already have to meet the needs of those around me? Just like the Samaritan, as he traveled, there are regular opportunities in front of us to meet the needs of others, to to show mercy. Not only as we travel, but are there ways that we can make those opportunities more often? That was probably not good grammar. We'll go with it. Are there ways that we can position ourselves in regular life so that as we travel, requires more interaction with our neighbors? Sorry, another story from from our family. One of the things that has has brought a lot of interaction between us and our neighbors involves this this tree in our front yard. At our house, we have one tree, and it's dying, and it's sick. It's not dangerous to anyone. It's just dying, and it should be taken down, but the tree is far too valuable for us. Because in the tree in the front yard, we have a a swing, just a simple little swing. But what we've tried to do is to make it a point to, on a regular basis, not every time, but on a regular basis, to play in the front yard on that swing. Because in the backyard, most of us have these privacy fences, and we don't regularly go around. We're not regularly interacting with our neighbors. As we travel, it's usually just by ourselves in the backyard. So we've made it a point to, on a regular basis, play in the front yard, And I can't tell you how many conversations with neighbors as they're getting out of their car, as they're walking the dog. There's opportunities just to interact. And Lord, what will you do with those? How can you be present in the lives of your neighbors, inviting them into genuine, mutually beneficial relationship? They are not projects, but they are people to be loved and to actually show love to you. Don't underestimate the power of presence. What's one step you can take towards your neighbor? What's a word of encouragement that you can share with your neighbor to speak life to them? What's a good question that you can ask them, inviting them deeper to be known and to know you? What about praying for your neighbors? How often do you find yourself praying for your neighbors? Do you pray for their physical needs, for their relationships, for their fears, for their anxieties? Do you pray that they would come to know Christ and be reconciled with God? And then you watch the news, and you're smacked smacked in the face with the the immense size of these needs. You come face to face with the needs in this world, and you're reminded again of the depths, the hurts that are in your community. And I don't know about you, but when I see that, I look at these silly little ideas, and I think, what good does it do? What good does it do to coach a soccer team? It's not even spiritual. 
what, what, what does it, does it really make a difference if I try and bless my neighbors by raking their leaves? They probably won't even notice. What if I keep trying to say hi to that one neighbor, interact with them, and yet they just don't even acknowledge me? And even if they did, it would be one person. My neighborhood is huge. What good does one conversation have? And what if I get into that conversation with my neighbor and they have some anxiety or some hurt that they share and I'm not a counselor, I'm not equipped, I don't know what to say. All I can do is pray. Ever feel that way? Feels like a cop-out, feels weak. Feel powerless. Because I think we all have this idea of what power is. We have this picture of what it means to be used by God, and we are convinced that to be used by God means that we have to make a big splash, to do big things in order to be used. We don't honestly believe that being a good neighbor, that looking for and meeting the ordinary needs of our neighbors isn't big enough. We want to be a part of something that makes us feel important, something that makes us feel special. And ordinary acts of neighboring just doesn't cut it. These ideas of loving our neighbor, they're just too small in the face of all the need and all the challenges in this world. And yet, friends, here is the good news. That if you feel too small, if you feel too weak, if you feel as though your acts of neighboring, your simple acts of love are too small and too weak, then you are in a beautiful place. Because it's in that weakness that is the most common place that God chooses to work. You read this passage earlier. I'm going to read it again to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things. This is my favorite part. The things that are not even things to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. This is the way that God has worked throughout all of human history is he takes what seems to be small and insignificant things and people and he uses them to move forward, to move his kingdom, to bring people to himself, to meet needs. Think of Abraham, some insignificant dude worshiping idols in a foreign land and God goes, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless the entire world. Think about Moses, who God calls and says, hey, go and lead my people, bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses stammers and says, I'm not a good speaker. Pick somebody else. I'm too weak. We think of King David as this mighty warrior who took down a giant, but the reality is when the prophet Samuel went to go, to Jesse's house, David's dad. We went to Jesse's house to anoint the next king. Jesse didn't even include David. He wasn't even invited to the party. He was so insignificant. Jesus' own incarnation is drenched in weakness. He was born to a virgin, a teenage girl from a nobody town, placed in an animal cereal bowl, and his first guests were shepherds from the outside, from the, from the county, countryside. This is God's definition of power. Power and strength is actually found in weakness. If you're familiar with J.R. Tolkien's work, uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien grabs this idea in the story. 
And when Middle Earth, their whole land is in, in turmoil and, in, in, and drenched in evil and in darkness, Gandalf, who is the all-powerful wizard, is asked, why a hobbit? Why the smallest, most insignificant, often overlooked person? Why this, this person from Middle Earth? Why the hobbit? Here's what he says. He says, Saruman, who's another powerful wizard, believes that it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that's not what I have found. I have found that it is the small things, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay, simple acts of kindness and love. This is the way of the kingdom, that God uses the unexpected, the weak, the foolish things, the small things of the world as the means in which he works and advances his kingdom. Why? So that no one may boast before him. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul actually says, we don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in our weaknesses. He brags about how weak he is because he says, when I am weak, that's when I am strong. And what would it be for us? This is really hard for us. I would say even especially as Americans, especially as suburban Americans. What does it mean for us to embrace our weakness rather than fight it and see and experience the power of God transform what seems to be weak and ordinary to something beautiful? Because in the kingdom of God, even the smallest, weakest, most ordinary act of love has tremendous power in it, but it all depends on whose hands it's in. If you have your scripture, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. And as you're turning there, don't worry, Dave, I won't actually mess with your guitar. If I picked this guitar up and I held it, it would make noise, right? It wouldn't be pretty. Because in my hands, that guitar is pretty much worthless. But you put that in the hands of your favorite guitar player, put it in the hands of Jimi Hendrix, put the hands of, you know, name your, name your person. And it's your favorite song. Take a paintbrush. A paintbrush in my hands would give you a clunky kindergarten-level stick figure at best. But you put that same paintbrush in the hands of Michelangelo, and you end up with the Sistine Chapel. You put a basketball in my hands, and I can promise you what you will get is a lot of turnovers and some air balls. But you put that basketball in the hands of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, and it will hopefully bring a championship, right? It all depends whose hands it's in, which is why I want us to look at John 6. At John 6, at this point in John's gospel, Jesus is performing miracles, and great crowds are following him. And at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus and his disciples cross over the Sea of Galilee, and they're sitting on a mountainside, and we're going to pick it up in verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus looked up, and saw a great crowd coming toward him. And he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each person to have one bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? The disciples see this wave of need coming at them. Jesus says, let's feed them. And they acknowledge their weakness. You can't just call Uber Eats or carry out. or Even if they did, they didn't have enough money for it. They were helpless in this moment. 
And Andrew pops in with the suggestion, hey, we've got this boy. Now, there's several ways you could say the word boy from in Greek. And John chose deliberately the one that emphasizes his smallness. Basically, what he's saying is, hey, there's this small boy who has small loaves of bread and two small fish. What good do they do? What difference does it make in, in light of all these needs? And these disciples are being confronted with their inadequacies, their inability to meet the needs of those around him. Meanwhile, Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do, and you probably know the rest as well. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed them to, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wanted, wasted, excuse me. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. In the boy's hands, in the disciples' hands, this was a snack. But when placed in the hands of Jesus, a miracle takes place. Because you see, in our hands, our little pathetic, small, ordinary acts of neighboring, no matter how competent we think we are, are weak and inadequate. We just can't meet the needs of those around us. Even We can't even meet the needs of one. But when we take those ordinary, small, weak acts of love for our neighbor and we put them into Jesus' hands, well, he can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. He can work miracles. In fact, the beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't actually need you to give him anything. Think about how he created the world with the word of his mouth. In fact, the moment when Jesus had everything he, everything he had taken from him, including his own life, the moment when he was stripped naked, when he was beaten, when he was left to die on the side of the road, hanging on the cross, when Jesus lost everything, including his life, was the exact moment of his most glorious strength. Because even when he had everything taken from them, is when he created salvation for the world. And the things that appear weak and small to us may be beautiful to God. And so in the kingdom of God, the true power and true strength is found in weakness. The kingdom, in kingdom, prayer is no longer this last resort of, well, I guess it's all I can do. But it's the most, it's the most intense, it's the strongest thing we can do. Because prayer is a confession of our weakness. It's a turning to God and saying, I am too small, I can't do it. But I want to put it in your hands. Colossians 4 summarizes this whole idea, saying, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, the Apostle Paul writes, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity and let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. And so as we travel, being watchful, devoting ourselves to prayer, surrendering our weak, our weak acts of love, our weak acts of neighboring, we surrender them to the Lord every moment of every day, and we put them in his hands. And so, Lord, I'm going to go for a walk with my dog. 
I'm going to put that in your hand. Because by myself, I'm just walking a dog. But with you, well, who knows what we do? Lord, I'm going to go try and have a conversation with my neighbor, and I'm going to put it in your hands. Who knows what you'll do? I'm going to give out Halloween candy on, in, a, in a little while, in a couple weeks. I'm going to go coach a kid's soccer team. I'm going to put those in your hands. Every moment of every day as we place them in the hands of the one who can do miracles, who loves to take small, insignificant things and do wonders. I'm going to go rake the leaves of my neighbor. I'm going to invite that neighbor over for dinner. I'm going to invite them in for a play date with their kids. I'm going to ask my neighbor for help. Whatever it is you're doing, these small, weak things, we take them and we place them in the hands of Jesus. Because when I'm weak, the power of Christ shines through, as Paul says. When I am weak, that's when I'm strong with Christ. Lord, I confess my doubts and my unbelief. I I so often don't think that these small things will do any good. I'm overwhelmed. Lord, renew my trust in you. Strengthen my weak faith that you are a God who can do whatever you want. You're a God who who loves to take weak, small, ordinary people, weak, small, ordinary acts of obedience and faithfulness and do great, beautiful things with them. And so, Lord, make us people of mercy. Make us people who embrace our weakness because when we are weak, that's when your power and your strength shines through. Lord, we pray all of this so that you would be glorified, not that we would boast in ourselves, but that we would make much of you. We pray this for your glory, and we pray this for our joy. We pray this all for the sake of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.